Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host, Will Button, and today joining me in the studio, our special guest, Ori Moncali. How are you, Ori? Hey, Will. Nice to speak to you. You too. Welcome. Welcome. Um, Can you give us a little introduction, a little bit about your background? Sure, absolutely. Uh, First of all, I'm doing... uh, software development and anything related to tech since I was, since I can remember myself. <laughs> Initially, it was just a hobby. Uh, a long time, it became a profession. And the uh, last uh, 20 plus years, I'm, I'm doing different kinds of engineering work in the industry, starting as a software developer. And in the recent years, I'm mostly managing uh, development teams. Um, my current position, I'm uh, heading the engineering team at Achilles. It is security. Uh, still enjoying writing software and uh, uh, learning more about different areas of technologies, things that uh, are renewing all the time. So that's my passion, and that's what I do for a living. Right on. That's a hard balance doing having a management role, but still being able to maintain or enjoy your technical skills. Agree. I mean, uh, I can see that management is an easy gateway for somebody that doesn't love uh, doing something like that and kind of switching roles to something else. Uh, for me, uh, out of choice, I'm, I'm trying to keep myself up to date. I'm very uh, down to the details. I like to keep maybe small projects, not in the critical path of uh, the development, still keeping my hands dirty and doing some work, but uh, it's a matter of choice eventually. If you like it and you, you find the time to do it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So one of the things we were going to talk about today was security in the CICD pipeline. Right, right. I mean, security, um, this to me, comes with a context of doing things the right way, sometimes correlated to doing things a little bit slower than usual because it has to be the right way. Um, and a lot of hurdles uh, for dev teams, right? You need to do things. You get uh, you need to get confirmation from uh, different authorities, making sure that this is uh, appropriate, this is according to the standards, according to whatever rule, least privilege, uh, zero standing credentials, etc. Our job at Achilles, uh, among other things, is to make uh, the security uh, standards high or keep the security standards high without the negative impact on velocity, like uh, making it simple, making it easy, and in some ca- cases, making it even uh, easier than usual. But, right? Instead of thinking where I should store this, uh, whatever, whatever secret, whatever piece of information that I have, uh, what would be the right uh, uh, repository, the right storage, now you have a place to do that and it, it integrates well with a lot of uh, technologies, authentication uh, types, uh, uh, different uh, infrastructures, platforms, cloud providers, etc. Yeah, for sure. And I think the like putting it in CICD, I think really opens up some interesting possibilities for you because then you can automate it. And I think that's where security really, I think that's really where you can start to gain ground on security. Like you mentioned, if you can make the right thing easier, the easier choice, 
than doing it the wrong way. That's really where you start to to see the gains from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, in the recent years, we see a lot of uh, growth and uh, adoption uh, of a lot of DevOps uh, tools, uh, DevOps tool change, should, should I say. Uh, things related, starting from configuration management tools, CI/CD platforms, uh, container orchestrations, a lot of uh, technologies uh, evolving in this domain. And um, this becomes a very convenient tool for automation, not necessarily just for releasing an artifact to production, but also to have like jobs to help uh, maintaining uh, the usual work, uh, the build environment and uh, related to that. Um, uh, and as such, it becomes an interesting target for uh, potential hackers, right? If, if you gain access to this centralized platform that has access to your cloud service provider, to databases in the organization, all of that, uh, that's, that's an easy target for, uh, uh, for hacking credentials and accessing those uh, systems. And oh, that's sure. what I think we should, we should, yeah, we should look at uh, when, when talking about security, how to protect uh, identities, workload identities, how to protect uh, different environments, uh, and to do that without adding uh, overhead on, on the process. Yeah, right on. So what would be your, for someone who's just acknowledging that security should be part of your, your organization, what would be the number one Thing you would point them at first, or the first thing to say, "Hey, start here." Uh, ideally, it would be mapping what kind of uh, sensitive information, sensitive data, what kind of different identities and permissions you have spread across your systems. Because uh, creating identities and giving access is very easy, right? You simply create another application, another tool. I request access, and all of a sudden, you found up with tons of identities uh, without much of control over it. Like when I ask uh, a DevOps person, um, "How many applications do you have, and what kind of permissions each and in every application has to perform on a different type of infrastructure?" That's not a simple uh, question to answer, because in many cases, you, you simply don't have the visibility. This problem right. is sometimes referred to as a secret sprawl problem because you have a lot of uh, different uh, uh, storages to maintain secrets, to keep access, different, different kinds of uh, uh, ways to manage policies, access policies. Like in one, one cloud provider, you have different type of uh, language and annotation, another type of uh, infrastructure, you have different things. So it, it becomes a lot of uh, know-how on how to manage it, and in many cases, it's kept in very selected few individuals' minds where to set what. Uh, talking about dashboards and, and visibility to uh, executive level is something that very rarely found. So identifying yeah. where the sensitive data is would be the number one step, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I think from my own perspective, my gut reaction to any problem is to start building something to solve that problem, but actually taking a step back and documenting where this problem exists, where it's used, 
would would change the perspective because then you kind of have a better understanding of the the size and the scope of the problem that you're trying to solve. Exactly. Um, I would say that afterwards, once once you have that mapped, um, you probably want to sort them by the most impactful uh, type of identities to the least impactful ones, right? Which one has access to many resources, privileged access, etc. And then try to deal with them first because the uh, virtual blast radius, should I say, of somebody's accessing those can be the most uh, significant, negatively significant uh, to the organization. Ideally, you don't want to maintain something that is lasting forever, right? So Mm -hmm. any type of... uh, credential, any type of uh, access should be limited in time for a reasonable duration. Uh, when I say reasonable, it, it cannot be, I don't know, 10 years or 15 years, because in that time you can do a lot of damage. Uh, I'm talking in many cases, uh, minutes, uh, maybe hours to perform some kind of tasks, but not much more than that. Yeah, you know, it was just about a year ago, I stumbled across uh, the Open ID Connect, I think OIDC, mm-hmm. and I don't, I haven't really seen it talked about a lot in many places. But I've actually fallen in love with it, and we've updated a bunch of our infrastructure to use that for that specific reason. Because whenever you go to take an action, the OIDC gets a set of short-lived tokens, and then you can scope those, scope the access permissions for those credentials down to just the exact deployment that you're dealing with at that time. And I thought that was such a cool idea. It's relatively easy to implement, but it doesn't seem to be very popular. Yeah, I think uh, OADC is positioning as one of the, uh, slowly, but one of the most uh, popular authentication methods for humans. it's, uh, in my opinion, it's, it's second to summon, which is more legacy one, but still mm-hmm. very widely used. Yeah. Um, but I think that over time, we will start to see more and more, uh, this is kind of the evolution of summon, and uh, we start to see more and more uh, relying on OIDC. The foundation or the underlying uh, technology is basically OAuth or JWT authentication. Right which is very popular for uh, application type of authentication. Uh, a lot of CI/CD platforms today are providing a temporary signed uh, JWT mm-hmm. uh, that can be used to verify or to identify the actual runner and the right context of run, like what kind of project ID, who triggered the uh, job, or wh- what kind of uh, uh, resource it's running, etc. And all those attributes, both coming from uh, JOT, native JOT authentication or um, OIDC, can be leveraged for access permissions. And that's very handy. Like imagine that you log into a platform and all of a sudden you have all the types of permission associated with your identity without the need or the the, uh, operational hassle of managing those same permissions permissions in two different platforms, one one being the actual infrastructure, the other one being the secret management side, right? Yeah. So basically take the same, like if you modify something in your IDP, 
in the identity provider, automatically it reflects to the secrets management and the access permissions you have there. So from uh, an administrative perspective of managing identities, that's a very uh, easy and convenient approach where identities live only in one place according to one policy. Yeah, and that's um, there's just so many so many wins to take away from that. The security team loves it, but also the just the IT and the support folks like it too because then it's just less chainsaws to be juggling at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think another thing that uh, um, I was talking uh, about the uh, the adoption of different uh, tools and technologies to the DevOps environment. Um, and one thing that still is not there is the unification of those tools in terms of visibility. Okay. How many tools you have? How many different users, both human users and applications are using specific flows, et cetera? The fact that you're using uh, a centralized platform for secrets management is giving you uh, implicitly, giving you visibility to all types of activities in the DevOps world. Right, so you can see, oh, this client is connecting from uh, CI/CD platform. This guy's this application is connecting through a Kubernetes cluster. This uh, flow is coming from uh, configuration management. This is a human authenticating to my uh, Jenkins uh, uh, web UI, wherever it may be. But because of the fact that any entity requires access to secrets, this gives you uh, implicitly. Uh, a wide visibility to what's going on inside your organization. And that's gold for a security officers because there is no other way that I can think of to see all those activities coming from different platforms. Maybe one infrastructure, like if you're running on a single cloud provider in a single flow, maybe that is another way to see that. But if you're multi-cloud or hybrid, if you're using different kinds of tools in different locations, the only good way to show that in my opinion, it would be through a secrets management platform, a centralized. Yeah, so the secret manager at that point not only becomes the source for storing your secrets, but also the like the audit tool for <clears throat> for defining the footprint and um, and use of those secrets across the entire organization. Agreed. Yeah, hundred percent. And maybe as an evolution, uh, as a next step applying uh, some kind of AI-based logic on this audit log can detect uh, different kinds of anomalies. Like uh, this activity is not something usual for this time of day or this uh, day of week or something like that. The number of requests here seems unusual with respect to previous weeks. Uh, This application is behaving weirdly in terms of accessing different kinds of secrets. And maybe, I mean, it's not something that is part of uh, uh, modern solutions as far as I know today, but maybe as a next step, this could be interesting in helping humans detecting uh, um, uh, breaches, security breaches, attacks, uh, something that would be hard to detect otherwise. Oh, for sure. That's actually a pretty cool idea. So if um, let's talk a little bit about how you gain like support and sponsorship for this type of project. If you want to, you know, do the full audit to gain, to improve your security posture, what are some of the, 
tools or stories that someone should be thinking about to help sell this to their management team and get get people on board with it? Yeah, I think that uh, this can be approached in two ways. One, from from the security perspective, okay, identifying uh, areas uh, and technologies that are not well protected today and defining what would be the impact if uh, specific credentials, specific identities would be exposed or uh, breached. Uh, That's one motivation. Another one is to facilitate, as I mentioned, unified view from an uh, operational perspective. Uh, A third approach would be to meet with certain requirements to compliance uh, regulations, etc., like uh, in order to be compliant to a certain standard, you have to have something like that. So different triggers uh, by different uh, uh, business units. Um, and also about the model, I think that model that you, te- you took about uh, sponsoring that, uh, this can be sponsored by um, the main driver, or this, some kind of centralized uh, entity in the organization, like a uh, uh, the CISO or the uh, CIO or something like that can also be done by the uh, IT uh, department if we're talking about the operational uh, side of things. Uh, and it can also be shared uh, shared sponsorship in the sense that it's very easy to know the, when using a centralized uh, platform which uh, departments or which applications consume services from the secrets mm-hmm. management. So, Ideally, you can divide uh, the uh, payment uh, based on internal uh, shared model, internal to the organization to say, okay, the the department that is using the most would carry most of the uh, costs of that or uh, sharing. So um, putting like the, you know, the, the dollars aside for a moment, I think that the motivation can come from different angles. Each organization that we see uh, is coming from a different uh, reason or maybe a combination of different reasons, but it's definitely definitely becoming a, a de facto standard for uh, large organizations and getting lower and lower. Like if in the beginning it was just for large uh, enterprises or corporates, today uh, we see even SMBs uh, asking about secrets management because it's obvious that you should have some solution. Yeah, for sure. Like the number of um, stories that we hear about every day just just keeps growing. It seems like the the people who are actually impacted most by that are the SMBs. You know, the enterprises, I think, typically have a larger, they have more people and more resources to work with. So maybe they're a little bit better positioned. But you just hear day after day of of small and medium businesses that have been shut down, locked out, or been unable to continue business because of security breaches. Yep. And and, uh, breaches is not something that happens once and that's it. I mean, the fact that a hacker gains access to even uh, a side application, something that looks... uh, maybe less relevant, 
um, there is the lateral movement, you know, like uh, when they're starting small and expanding the knowledge and gaining more and more access, more and more possession of, uh, of infrastructure and resources inside the organization and waiting for this special moment, the doomsday, when, when something like that is exploding. And when it explodes, then uh, it becomes a big business problem for this particular vendor or this particular uh, organization. So detecting it when it's still small, relatively small, and the impact is still uh, scoped and known, uh, the ability to detect and also remediate that problem, right, by restricting access to this application, rotating set of uh, credentials, revoking access to certain applications, all that is very important in the process of uh, securing uh, the organization. Right on. And that ties right back into the mapping exercise that you mentioned at the start of the episode, because now you know what credentials this application use, what services it talks to, and where else those components are used in your infrastructure. Yes, an interesting concept that I think that is getting more and more uh, traction over time is the use of just-in-time credentials. Historically, like if you if you're uh, uh, a lot of, many years in the industry, like uh, myself, uh, there were files, configuration files with the static credentials, username, passwords, tokens, API keys, and typically they they lasted for years. Like if somebody <laughs> got a got a, a view of them, they can keep using them uh, without any ability to detect that this is a misuse, right? From you look from the backend side or the service side uh, perspective, it's a valid authentication of an authorized entity. Uh, what we see more and more is that there is no reason to have standing privileges in systems across the environment. Okay, only when an application or a human needs access for a certain uh, reason for a certain task, only then the credentials will be generated. And they will also be ephemeral, like meaning they have time to leave. They have a duration that after this time, they will be revoked automatically without any uh, human intervention in the process. Mm -hmm. And that model is becoming more and more uh, popular for two main reasons. One uh, is the impact. Like if 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 I forget my uh, workstation open, if somebody gra- grabs access to a certain set of credentials, they can do so much with it until they expire. But secondly, it's also enforcing the use of a centralized system. Imagine that we're talking about humans, and humans are very lazy by nature, and it's very normal. <laughs> and they say, okay, why should I log into a secrets management platform, fetch a username and password over and every day uh, and to connect to my database, right? The second time you do that, you say, hey, I can keep a copy of that because it's static. I can keep it in my notepad. End of story, I don't need to log in anymore. Um, And that's true if you're talking about static secrets, but what if there is no static secret? Anytime you need to get dynamic secret, then you're basically forced or enforced to do that the right way. Now, our job is to make it easier and less painful to people like that in the sense that there is single sign-on integration. You mentioned OIDC before in Summon and and other, so you don't have to retype over and over your credentials to, to get some access. Um, but secondly, it's mostly done by applications. And applications can use their uh, trusted identities 
mm-hmm. like if they're running on cloud service providers infrastructure, they can use the cloud IAM to authenticate to Achilles seamlessly. Like you don't have to have an additional set of credentials. If you're working on modern infrastructure like uh, Kubernetes clusters, they can use the Kubernetes identities to authenticate seamlessly and fetch credentials. So you find ways to make it easy but secure to authenticate to a secrets management platform, rely on just-in-time credentials to apply the uh, the principle that uh, don't have zero, so what's called zero-standing privileges, and also making sure that the credentials are abiding with the right policy in terms of access, the authorization layer. Which means that if, here it applies to the principle of least privilege. You don't provide anything beyond what the application or the human requires for this particular task. If you're using standing credentials, you would have to have tons of sets of users and only a very uh, educated person would pick the right one for this task. But when you use dynamic secrets or just-in-time access, it's very easy because you have access only for read-only operations or only for a specific set of secrets that are required for this application. So it's helping in in so many ways. And uh, I think that this is a trend that we see more and more. And I think that in a few years' time from now, it would be very rare to see static credentials uh, in production environments. Yeah, that would that would be cool. Like like you, I've been doing this for a long time. And I remember many times whenever someone would say, we need to rotate these keys and everyone would just cringe because we knew that it was going to involve production downtime because nobody knew where they were used and it was going to be painful and we were going to have everyone mad at us. It's a huge project for many organizations. Sometimes they run, uh, it's uh, funny because uh, we have other ways to do that, but I saw places that they run campaigns, like ticketing campaigns. They they send messages, uh, have you rotated this uh, set of users? Have you done that? Please send me confirmation. Please do that. It takes months to do that. It's very painful, like you you said. Uh, It's very scary. What would be the impact of that? And uh, I have to be honest. that is something that is not going away uh, soon. Like using just-in-time credentials is very common, but uh, uh, not necessarily for privileged accounts, like break glass admins or something like that. That right. would have to stay. Uh, and for that, uh, the solution is to use rotated secrets, but to do that in an automated fashion, meaning that's something that you don't even think about. You have a, a predefined configuration, how often you want to, rotate those privileged uh, privilege credentials. And at that time, uh, an automated task is performed and doing that, uh, including the validation of it, uh, in a seamless manner. And the new version is kept in the secrets management. And the previous version is still available in case you want to roll back or revert uh, that change. Uh, and therefore, no human intervention in the process. Therefore, no need to have uh, complex and... Uh, 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 expensive campaigns uh, to uh, uh, force people to do that. It simply happened. It's an it's a non-event. Yeah, and I think that's you know we we have all the tools to do that. The technology exists. I think part of that is just a comfort level, you know, because it takes a a high level of confidence in your tooling to just put it on autopilot like that and say, yeah, just rotate the creds whenever you think it's good. I'll 
I'm sure it's going to be fine. The only way that you can achieve that uh, is if all the systems, all the applications, all the humans are working with a centralized secrets management. Because if yeah. there are two sources of truth, one of them will break. Right. You rotate the one, the other one. Yeah. So it has to be relying on that. And that's one of the biggest advantages, I think, of uh, a centralized system like that. Yeah. You know, because it's um, specifically in, in areas where you have like multi-cloud organizations, it's so easy with AWS to just use Secrets Manager or in GCP use their Secrets Manager. But then whenever you have to bridge both of those, you've got to step back to something that's external to both of those. And so then you have this big social campaign. So now you've got to socialize your new secrets manager to your engineering teams who are writing the code so that they know that this other thing exists and that um, that they should be using that rather than building in using the built-in native tools. And I think that social component of it is probably one of the hardest things for for a lot of people, I know it is for me personally, because I'm very, I like doing things very technical. I'm not really good at socializing things, but that's a, a huge component to making that type of effort successful. Yeah, 100% agreed. And uh, add to multi-cloud uh, legacy environments on-premise, something that does not interact well with cloud Um so you get yourself a lot of uh, secret silos, uh, different policies, different uh, processes, different automation scripts, whatever you want to call that. That's in the good case that you're automating <laughs> or trying to automate. Uh, the, the other alternative is worse that it's simply like that forever and everybody's afraid of touching uh, so something would break. Yeah, yeah I think that's a... Um... That's something I've encountered in the past is people hesitating to do this because they're afraid of breaking it. Um, one argument I've used to overcome that in the past is saying, look, it's going to break either way. We can either choose to break it intentionally right now for the purposes of fixing it, or we can wait for it to break at some random undetermined time in the future that we can absolutely guarantee is not going to be convenient for anyone. So it's it's our choice. Yeah, and I, I will add to that, uh, maybe uh, not following recommended practice when it comes to production environment. Um, for different reasons, it can be uh, costs, it can be laziness. Ideally, you would want to have uh, a staging environment or a dev environment or testing environment it is identical to your production environment. So you are able to test something before it applies or affects production workload. Uh, maintaining that is something that is expensive, uh, both in, in the uh, amount of resources that you need to uh, duplicate, but also uh, humans, I mean, engineers that need to maintain it to make sure it's uh, synchronized, to make sure it's uh, aligned, etc. But once you're at that point, you can simulate a lot of scenarios. What happens if I rotate this value? How? What's the impact? What will break? And you do that before it's impacting uh, customers, before it's impacting business. Um, and that would be ideal. I mean, if I look at our production environment, the way that it's structured, it it's part of our pipeline. 
you cannot do a single change to production if it's not passing all the tests, all the uh, validation steps that we have in uh, uh, staging environments prior to that. Now, it, it costs money, right? You need to basically double the the dollars that you pay for production, but it buys you reliability, which in some sense uh, uh, values uh, for money for our customers, okay? Imagine that something like that, a business-critical system like secrets management is not, uh, uh, is not accessible. This yeah. means automatically that our customers are bleeding money, uh, Pages all over the place. I mean, it's it, it's becoming a, a, a mad place. But uh, we need to be very confident about the changes that we do. And I think that our customers, uh, many of them, are following the same practices uh, to achieve that goal of not being afraid of doing changes or being less afraid. Right on. Circling back to the CICD integrating with security thing what are the um, what are the different areas in a CD, CICD pipeline that you think are are stop points or, or security checkpoints um, so today a lot of uh, CICD platforms are integrating the uh, uh, SCM with the uh, the part of uh, the deployment okay so checking out code is a non-issue part of the same platform. You don't have to authenticate to a remote GitHub repo or something like that. Right. Um, uh, in the past, it used to be like that. Like, I mean, in, in, I don't know, in using Jenkins or something like that, you have to authenticate to uh, a remote Git repo. Uh, and the second part is about the deployment, the CD part of things, right? So uh, when you deploy something, it normally... Uh, involves uh, two phases. One of them is building the artifact and uploading it to some kind of uh, artifact uh, or artifactory server. Mm -hmm. It can be a container uh, registry that holds the uh, recent version of the image. It can be a few set of binaries that you uh, stage somewhere in the in some kind of uh, S3 bucket or something equivalent to that. And, this, and the second phase is to apply uh, the new artifacts in the production environment. That can be by uh, applying a, a restart rollout to your Kubernetes deployment or, or uh, reinstalling uh, certain components in, uh, in a software to pick them up. All of that is like a typical um, CI-CD flow. Uh, checking out a piece of code, building something, getting artifacts, uploading them somewhere, applying it to production environment. All those steps without any exception, maybe just the build part, will require uh, a set of credentials, okay? To authenticate to Git, to you know, Docker Hub or whatever registry you have, uh, mm -hmm. Kubernetes, etc. And typically it's not for a long time. Like you need it for just know, a minute or two uh, for the authentication. Uh, so just in time is, is a perfect match to this, uh, to this uh, flow. Uh, and it's very diverse. So you see a lot of technologies. Sometimes you even use a database to query something in order to decide where to apply or what to do something. That's another security checkpoint to uh, authenticate to that database. So um, I believe that in, if you look at the flow, you will see a lot of, uh, a lot of integrations with the secrets management in that flow. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just pretty much every step along the way, you need a different set of credentials or a different set of secrets for that step. Yeah. Right on. So we're saying that um, the secrets management platform has all of our secrets. So how do we how do we set up the secrets management platform to be secret itself, right? Uh, I'm guessing that you're aiming how would uh, an application, a CI CD pipeline, for example, would authenticate to a secrets management platform without having an initial secret by itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting point. I mean, uh, talking about legacy workload, that probably was the case. I mean, there wasn't any kind of underlying uh, or fancy underlying infrastructure. Just run on bare metal hosts with no uh, type of identification for this particular workload, uh, let alone in a trusted manner. So you had to have something like that. Today, most of the infrastructure uh, is running on top of uh, uh, modern infrastructure. May it be a cloud service provider, different kinds of services there, um, uh, Kubernetes clusters, CI/CD platforms, and all of them uh, are providing some kind of trusted identity. When I say trusted, it means that it can be verified by a third party. If we were talking about this uh, uh, JWT authentication, it means that the CI/CD platform is holding uh, a sensitive private key that is used to sign this job for a short duration. And it's also providing an external endpoint uh, with access to the public key, matching public key, that any third party can just validate if this is signed by this uh, trusted entity. Uh, cloud service providers are doing something similar to that using different uh, services and SDS service and others uh, to be able to validate. And if you're still, if, if you're still using a, a legacy workload running on bare metals or VMs on-prem, um, there are ways to bypass that. We have implemented something, an authentication method called, we call it universal identity. The concept is to have um, tokens that are frequently and rapidly uh, rotating. So there is an initial token, but immediately after that, it's been uh, constantly and uh, frequently rotated. Each rotation is invalidating the previous version of the token. So uh, the the reason it's it's considered more secure is because a, a random uh, hacker that gets, gets access to this environment has no identity to steal outside of that environment. Like if I see this token... I can maybe take it and try to use it elsewhere. In a second from now, it will no longer be valid because by then it was rotated. Wow. One of the so questions that I may ask. When you, when you yeah. say short-lived, you're talking numbers of seconds? Numbers of seconds, yes. Wow, right on. Yes. And uh, what I'm being asked is, is, in order to rotate a token, you need to have access to the token itself, right? This is the the identity that allows you to, to perform the rotate operation. Um, so somebody asked me once, what if this uh, hacker uh, is rotating the token before the valid application is? Even though it's, we're talking about seconds, we're still quick enough to do that. Um, that may be the case, but one of the events that would uh, be caused as a result of that is the rotation of re- operation of the valid application would fail. 
And that ev- event alone can be triggered can be triggered in order to revoke access to the application. Something is bad happening, I simply revoke access to anyone who's using this identity. So in any case, this random hacker would not be able to enjoy or to get access to secrets. And that's basically taking a, an old school environment and making it a trusted environment or trusted identity without the secret zero problem or the chicken and an egg problem like that you described. Right on. And that ties kind of into the difference between authentication and authorization, right? So the signed token is the authentication piece of that. And then the contents of the token itself are the requested authorization that may be granted once the signed token is validated, right? To be precise, the token contains a set of attributes which in the backend are associated with the, uh, an authorization layer. It's, in our case, it's, uh, it's based on uh, role-based access control or RBAC. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely relying on the attributes that are part of that token, but that alone is not the access role because it's, the language is more rich than just holding it in a, in a token. Um, it's about capabilities, what kind of access rules, which kind of secrets, what type of permissions based on crude attributes. So you have a lot of data uh, behind the scene and holding it inside a token that's supposed to be relatively small in size uh, is not uh, realistic. Gotcha. Cool. So from, from someone just getting started on on this or just trying to gain traction on it, um, the mapping exercise to understand the scope of the problem, prioritize it to attack the or to address the biggest risk items first, and then use that to start um, bringing in other teams to sell it to them and show them the benefits or why they may have a vested interest in this. And then from that point, you may have a pretty good idea what your implemented solution is going to look like. Does that sound about right? Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a fair description of what we discussed. Yeah, piece of cake. Just an afternoon's <laughs> work, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's always like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Cool. All right. Well, I think we are um, coming up on an hour here. Is there anything else that you would like to share or offer as a words of wisdom to someone taking on their security journey? I think we've covered pretty much uh, the main stuff that I wanted to discuss. Obviously, we can expand on different areas. Um, yeah, I see different topics, but I don't think we have enough uh, time to cover everything. So I think it's a good uh, start. And uh, maybe in future sessions, we'll know. Yeah, it sounds like you just teed us up for uh, a part two of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? Right on. For it. Cool. So let's do, um, let's do some picks. Just to introduce something cool, my pick for today is going to be the Govee lights, um, govee, G-O-V-E-E dot com. I put some of these lights, we have this recessed ceiling in our living room. So I put some up there and it's just been super cool and you can control it all with your app 
and it uses um, it connects to your Wi-Fi. And you know, I think one of the biggest concern I have with all of these uh, smart lights is giving them access to my network and. <laughs> me too, me too. Yeah, so I don't know if Govi is any secure, any more secure than any of the others. This is not a security endorsement. Um, the only disclaimer I'll say there is I do have an isolated Wi-Fi network in me the too, house. Me too, me too. Yeah. I, I separate the networks. I don't know, it's something that I picked in the past. <laughs> right. uh, one for the computers and, and sensitive information and all, all the rest for all the unknowns, devices that I purchase online and I don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I run three networks. I have the one for my work computer and then the one that the rest of the family uses with their phones and computers and stuff. And then there's the third one for anything yes. <laughs> that wants to claim it's smart. I'm like, okay, well, you can go be smart over there. Absolutely. And uh, once when I had the time, I even tracked, uh, I don't know, I took uh, some... Uh, TCP dumps to see what kind of activity is this device doing when I'm not doing anything. Uh, you'll be surprised how many packets it's sending to different uh, IP addresses across the globe where I didn't get the chance to investigate. But as long as uh, it's not able to access the local network, at least the computer network, I'm, I'm quite okay with it. Yeah, for sure. You, you just got to limit your exposure. It's about all you can do. Absolutely. So, I'm also I'm also dealing with uh, like uh, improving me, my uh, smart home devices. Uh, uh, it's it's a project that I started many years ago when before all the uh, uh, easy to plug in devices were selling uh, online. Uh, I started with a small uh, Arduino project. The initially just to turn on and off uh, a light, a light bulb. Right. Uh, later on, uh, it was so embarrassing to buy something much cheaper than the but then the board itself to do everything for you, plus connecting to the internet and Wi-Fi. <laughs> right. Um, and today I'm I'm combining it all uh, uh, in a mobile application, so it's very easy. Sometimes, like w- when I'm driving home, like uh, I turn on the AC when when it's hot outside, so I get home and everything is all breezy and nice. Uh, opening the uh, uh, the winds, uh, the shields uh, in the morning and closing them at night and all that. So. It's a project that is ongoing, but uh, I enjoy playing with it uh, when I have the time. Yeah, for sure. Time's a big commitment there um, because I find it super interesting. But me, Ma, my wife is like, will you just stop? Leave it alone. I just want it to work. <laughs> exactly. You need to have a fail-safe mechanism, something that and all the fancy stuff is not working. You still have a knob to get what you wanted to do then. I need a staging environment for my home automation so that I can <laughs> keep production up time. <laughs> and keep it with a secrets management for all the sensitive data that you have. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So Govi lights are my pick. What uh, what have you got for us, Ori? Um, it's, uh, it's hard because most of the innovation that I'm playing with is uh, related to uh, what I do at work. So... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, recent uh, evolution that uh, uh, or small uh, gig that I did is related to uh, application monitoring. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to identify what specific flow in the application is the one causing uh, an ex- uh, unexpected use of resources, whether it's uh, CPU, memory, and other stuff. There are many tools to do that today, but the interesting part is how to facilitate that 
to the developer so they can see exactly what's the problem, capturing this very moment and facilitating that. So we we had a, a different solution, uh, part of our product uh, for accessing web applications. Uh, the challenge was that this data uh, uh, is textual and can be converted to an HTML, but it's required to do some kind of uh, an operation to run or to execute the process uh, before the page is uh, uh, or rendered. Uh, so I combined that with a, a small um, uh, Lua script that runs on Nginx, and that this triggers the command to populate the HTML. It's fast enough so you wouldn't notice in the browser that something is happening in the background, but it's like in a click of a button, you're able to see uh, the application flow. So that's that's something I worked uh, in the side. It's not directly related to what I do, but it was a nice uh, project that I played with. Right on. That's super cool. Cool. So if people want to get in touch with you, talk more about security, how can they do? Sure, What's absolutely. the best way to reach you? Um, I think the best way through my uh, email, uh, it's ori at akidas.io. Uh, I cannot promise an immediate or fast response, but I, I can promise a response. So fair enough. <laughs> give it a try. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation and um, I look forward to having you back on to talk more about this. Thank you very much, Will, for hosting me here. It was truly a pleasure and fun, and I look forward to, to talk again soon. Right on. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you all next week.